Welcome to this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown for June the 9th, 2021. My name is Special Agent Hollingsworth. Joining me is Special Agent Foskett. No relation. Roger that. It's good to be here, Tom. Well, it's not good to be a criminal this week, as we'll find out a little bit later when we dive into some of our closer look stories. However, we did want to take a lighthearted look at some of the fun stuff that has been going on since the last time we met with you. So let's jump right in. Now, this is a little bit of an older story with um, some new information. IBM announced last October that they're going to be spinning off all of their managed services businesses into a separate entity. Now, most people agree that the move was seen as a way to kind of streamline things on the Red Hat side of the house to kind of focus on hardware and hybrid cloud and AI research. And all of the services business was going to go into its own separate entity. Well, this week, IBM, actually last week, IBM announced that there is a new name for that. You want to guess what it is? I bet you can't because they named it Kindrel, which according to IBM takes cues from the word kinship because everybody is all kinship family thing and tendrils because, and I quote, the relation, uh, it sparks the idea that business is always working toward improving human progress, which is what I get when I think tendrils and totally not Cthulhu. No word on yet on why all the whys were necessary in all of the vowels, or if IBM was just uh, not at the vowel store that day. Um, Steven, this is probably the worst name for a great move in technology. Why is that? I'm just going to say A-E-I-O-U, and sometimes why. What is your problem with why as a vowel, Tom? I think that should be the focus of today's story. No, actually, I've got a problem with it, too. This is a dumb, dumb, dumb name. I'm sorry, Kindrel. Kin makes me think of hillbillies. The drill, the first thing I thought was a mandrel monkey with a big stripy nose. Um, and then I thought, like, you know, like you did, like squids and stuff like that. So um, a bunch of hillbilly monkeys from Armonk are going to be providing IT services. I don't know. The, the whole thing is just, it's just a crazy name. And as somebody pointed out, Kindrel also sounds like the name that uh, you know somebody might name their their daughter in 2021, um, and maybe that's what they were going for. Um, you know, I missed the 80s when people named their kids Kendra instead of Kendrel. Um, but anyway, that that being said, Kendrel is uh, TLDR. Kendrel is the uh, IBM Global Services and not Red Hat, and that's how it is. Um, cool. Uh, <laughs> We just had to cover this because it's just such a bad name. I'm sorry. It, there's just no two ways about it. It's a bad name. Um, so let's talk about something actual. Um, another spinoff uh, with a much better name, uh, cybersecurity giant FireEye announced this week that they're selling their products business to a private equity firm. The deal is reported to be worth about $1.2 billion dollars. And the products being sold to the firm uh, will continue to carry the FireEye name and the cybersecurity research and forensics division that's left behind is now going to be called Mandiant Solutions. If you remember, Mandiant was the name of the company uh, purchased back in 2014 that gave FireEye access to new resources, including a resource named Kevin Mandia, the CEO. Uh, Tom, is this a good move by the company to refocus their efforts or is this sort of, um, I don't know, the, the child eating the parent? So I think this is ultimately a great move 
because what's going on is that a lot of people have started to say that FireEye is more involved in the forensic side of things. In fact, I couldn't tell you the last time I ran into FireEye hardware in the wild. And the problem is, is that little firewall, the virtual firewall that you build between the investigative side and the product side. And are you really investigating because you want to make the world better or are you trying to sell more hardware? So I think what happened here is that a private equity firm realized that they could probably do a little bit more with that side of it. And then they agreed to buy it so that Mandiant, now Mandiant, could focus on all of the research. Because remember, FireEye is the company that found the SolarWinds hack. So obviously, they're going to be coasting on that for a while. Ultimately, I think this is a good move for them to kind of separate the two businesses. Because I mean, honestly, the reason why they got bought in the first place is because Mandiant investigated an incident inside of FireEye in the first place. So there's a lot of synergy there. And I think that they've done as much as they can to kind of build off of that. I think we're probably going to see more of this going forward is that the research divisions of companies are going to become their own separate entities to kind of build up that, I don't know, insulation from the idea that they're really just pushing products on people as opposed to actually doing incident response. And when you consider how much stuff has been going on recently, they're going to be too busy to worry about selling other stuff. So this is a, a very good move. I just hope that FireEye can survive our favorite private equity meat grinder. All right. So, Stephen, it wasn't just you. The internet actually did go down for a few hours on Tuesday morning. Um, users started reporting issues getting to sites like Reddit, Twitter, and even XKCD. Um, the source of the issues was quickly traced to be a problem with content delivery network fastly and not our favorite boogeyman of we got hacked. Um, the company quickly updated their status page to reflect that there was a problem. And then they updated again to say there was a problem. And eventually we got some kind of a press release that said that there possibly could have been a configuration change that caused this. And they quickly rolled it back um, by about 11 a.m. UTC, which was just about the time that people in the U.S. started waking up. Um, however, issues did persist through most of the morning. So, you know, do that what you will. Um, Stephen, We've seen this happen before with companies like Cloudflare when there's an outage, like the whole internet goes down or like when everything's running through an Amazon transit gateway and it breaks. But unlike Cloudflare, Fastly just never really told us what happened. So there's not a whole lot for us to learn from this. Um, but should we be a lot more cautious about the fact that CDNs are kind of a necessary evil right now? Well, CDNs are a necessary evil. And I guess let's get that out of the way from the start, um, right, right off the bat. Uh, the internet wouldn't be what it is without CDNs and without companies like Fastly and, um, of course, Cloudflare and I, uh, Amazon's CloudFront and others, uh, your worldwide web experience would be much more worldwide weight. But that being said, uh, there's a big difference between Fastly and companies like Cloudflare, in my opinion, because, um, frankly, Fastly didn't do a very good job of communicating about this bug, uh, and they haven't done a good job even since. Uh, so they did publish a blog post, actually. I'm, I'm looking, uh, it looks like it just went out yesterday, um, where there's sort of a postmortem, but it's like the world's shortest postmortem. We'll link to it in the notes. Essentially, what looks like happened now. Let's just say this, um, I'm starting to think that there's a whole category of rundown tech news that is classified as stuff my mom heard about. And so the Fastly outage or qualifies as stuff my mom heard about uh, because it was news. And 
what I think the normal world is reporting is that it was some kind of power outage. And I think that that's a total misunderstanding of what happened. Um, it, it wasn't some kind of power outage. What Fastly is now saying, or at least if you read between the lines on their very brief blog post, what they're saying is that they effectively had a command that if, if triggered would basically cause a cascade failure and take out part of their network. Um, it was a customer facing command and the customer triggered it. So imagine uh, if Intel had an instruction that would like disable like all the CPUs if you called this instruction, it's kind of like that. Apparently that's what happened and apparently it was just sitting there for a while and nobody triggered it until some customer somewhere did an a, a approved documented thing and triggered this command. Basically the first customer to use this thing triggered it and suddenly there goes the network. Uh, that's apparently what happened. Um, and it took down a lot of sites and Fastly did a bad job of communicating. Uh, <laughs> their like status post for a long time basically said, yeah, some kind of outage, some kind of slowdowns, we don't know. You know, and that was basically their communication during this thing. It was just bad all around. Um, anyway, but but that being said, um, I think we're all spoiled by Cloudflare with their uh, heavy communication and deep navel gazing and let's face it, stable network. So um, glad that all of our stuff runs through Cloudflare. How about that? Yeah, I would highly agree. Um, they, they may not be like perfect, but when they aren't perfect, they tell us what happened. And I can really appreciate that. All right, Stephen, I got one more story for you and it has an Ohio twist. So here we go. Ohio Attorney General David Yost, Dave Yost is about to rain on Google's parade because he filed a lawsuit in state court alleging that the search giant has unfairly used their search dominance to position their own products over competitors and act like a monopoly. Um, according to reports, almost two-thirds of the Google searches in 2020 landed on a Google property, whether it was Google Travel, Google Shopping, Google News. So something's a little bit hinky here. Now, this is the first time that a state has filed a lawsuit against the tech company alleging monopolistic practices. There have been several lawsuits that were filed late last year about their whole ad dominance and, and things like that. Um, now, of course, if you listen to Google, um, they said that this would make Google search results worse and make it harder for small businesses to directly connect with customers, which sounds like boilerplate, please don't sue us and make us defend ourselves in court. Um, Stephen, is there anything here or should we be looking at the railroads on Monopoly board instead of the public utilities? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just be clear. He's Dave, not David. Um, as, a, as a somebody in Ohio, let me just say, this guy's a Dave. Um, but uh, it, it, the funny thing for me was that came from Dave Yost. So this is a guy who filed a friend of the court brief trying to support the invalidation of the election. I mean, this guy's not some kind of like liberal. This guy is a super conservative and to have a super conservative accuse a company of like abusing monopoly power and of, you know, abusing customer trust and things like that. Well, honestly, that gives me some hope. You know what I mean? Because uh, frankly, we uh, need a little bit more of uh, companies trying to uh, uh, be reined in a little bit. And, and, and frankly, some of the allegations that he's making in here seem to, they seem a little logical to me. Um, you know, I mean, effectively, uh, not only is Google a verb as well as a noun, 
but for many people, it's the verb. Despite all the advertising that you hear um, from our DuckDuckGo and things like that, uh, I still think that uh, Google is uh, really, you know, incredibly dominant in terms of search. Uh, so dominant, in fact, that uh, when there was a recent uh, issue with Bing uh, reporting the tank guy, uh, Google that story, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I think nobody noticed for a little while because so few people use Bing. Um, and, and, and frankly, that's, um, you know, kind of indicative of Google's market power. So I'd say it's, it's an interesting angle. I don't know if it's going to work, but uh, to say that Google has a de facto monopoly on search, I think is maybe not a controversial statement. I think the controversial statement is, is it a monopoly that abuses their power and abuses customer trust? And frankly, that's a decision for the courts, not little nerds like me. So anyway, I, I feel like this is a, an interesting story. I'll keep an eye on it. And uh, I'm glad to see Dave on the side of the consumer. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep Dave in our thoughts and keep monitoring the story as well. Um, let's take a closer look at some stories. And I really feel like that this section this week should be sponsored by the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation because they've been busy. So first things first, just when you thought that the FBI couldn't get any better at getting things done, we find a fun little story that involves something that Stephen is now calling the FBI phone. According to a report from The Guardian, the criminal underworld was rocked with a series of arrests all over the globe in the last couple of weeks. Law enforcement agencies were able to invade various criminal organizations thanks to a messaging app that was installed that purported to keep their communications encrypted and secret from prying eyes. Who was the developer of this application, you might ask? <laughs> well, that turns out to be the FBI. The app was seated on a bunch of devices that were then obtained by criminals. And in one case, a criminal mastermind bought a series of phones with this app pre-installed and passed it out to all of his buddies. Now, mind you, these phones had been crippled in other ways to prevent any data from leaking. They had their cameras turned off, they had their GPS chips ripped out. They were about as neutered as you could get. And these were so trusted the, the criminals chose to speak openly about the crimes that they were committing, not in code. I mean, we've all seen The Godfather and we're like, go do the thing. I'll do the thing for you, but never say what the thing is. And then you can't be arrested for it. These guys are like, yeah, the speedboat full of cocaine is going to be on dock 17. Go get it. Um, and the FBI was just raking all this information in. And also they were finding out fun little things about, you know, businesses that were fronts, um, informants that were sharing law enforcement sting operations and things like that. So they rolled up a whole bunch of people. So this was kind of interesting. Um, but the thing is, is this a step that the FBI is really trying to take to keep ahead of the ne'er-do-wells? Or is this really more focused on the fact that the FBI is taking a more offensive role in breaking up these operations because when you look at it like the the article that we're going to link to from the register talks about an australian criminal network but this took place in the netherlands and the u.s and a whole bunch of other places so this was like one big coordinated global sting all at once yeah absolutely and this and this is honestly this is not um a story of you know the fbi taking offensive action this is a story of a hilarious caper. I mean, this thing is is this thing has got like movie written all over it. Yeah, the funniest thing is because they the the, the, the crooks trusted these phones so much that they were willing to just say whatever, you know. Yeah, why don't you go kill this person, you know? 
hello. Um, anyway, so apparently this has been a thing. The, these encrypted phones, there's like basically, uh, let's call them dumb phones, because the truth is that the criminals are pretty dumb here. And uh, frankly, the phones are pretty uh, watered down so that they're not smartphones anymore. Uh, as you said, they have a lot of the stuff disabled or taken out. Uh, typically, they're Android phones that have been modified, have modified software on them. And I've been kind of watching these things with a little bit of interest from the sidelines for a while because it's just such a kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? To think that um, there's, you know, basically criminal uh, software engineers who are designing uh, neutered smartphones for criminals to use in hopes that the criminals can then use smartphones to coordinate their activities without getting caught. And apparently these things have been pretty widespread and the FBI decided, as you said, to get in on the action and make their own FBI phone, as I'm calling it, um, even though it's not an iPhone, it's an Android. Um, but, but FBI phone is way funnier. So let's say FBI phone. Um, so they, they, they apparently the FBI got in on this. Uh, just some fun details. Um, the way that this thing got established in the criminal underworld is apparently some Australian heavy um, liked the, the pitch, liked the idea uh, bought one for himself and then went around like evangelizing the product to all his peers. I mean, so there's influencer marketing for you. Uh, he probably posted it on, um, you know, I don't know, criminal Instagram, which I'm sure is a thing. And, um, you know, hey, look at all my piles of money. Oh, hey, here's my new FBI phone. Isn't it cool? And, um, and showed it off to all his pals because apparently some of the other earlier designs were a little bit chunky. I mean, remember when Obama didn't want to use a you know, Blackberry, you're going to want to use an iPhone, that kind of thing. Apparently, um, I don't know, maybe that wasn't the story, but it, it, something like that, you know, the criminals were like, ooh, that's the new cool phone. I'm going to get me one of them. I'm going to buy them for my whole network. We're going to talk about crime. And, um, and they did. And the FBI was listening in the whole time and sharing this information with local law enforcement. Apparently, the FBI was pretty cagey about not sharing the exact source of the information, because there was another thing that happened here, too. So not only did they uh, this last week, arrest a ton of global criminals using data collected from these phones. But over the last months and years, they've been arresting police officials and, and security and intelligence officials around the world for leaking information to criminals. And in many of those cases, there was a lot of questions of how exactly did they know who leaked this information or how it got into the hands of the criminals? And the answer is, surprise, FBI phone. So a lot of uh, you know, police inspectors in different countries were uh, essentially working with the crooks and passing on information. And the FBI was using this communication to catch those guys too. And so this whole thing is just kind of funny. Um, you know, it's always funny when criminals get uh, hoisted by their own petard, as it were, and their stupidity and hubris catches them. And so we'll have some fun with the story and move on. Uh, I guarantee the next time there's a, a anonymous encrypted phone, the criminals are not going to be any more careful because they're stupid. And that's what's going to happen. So there you go. Yeah, I think that this should just about put to bed any questions about whether or not the US federal government needs a backdoor key and iMessage or any other encrypted messaging platform, because if they don't have it, they'll just make their own. And um, yeah, plus, I, I don't necessarily know that I want anybody having access. FBI message, FBI photo, FBI cloud. We can, we can, we can just go on all day with this. I hope you're trademarking these names at this point. Oh, I, I, am, I am trademarking at lightning speed, Tom, lightning speed. Um, 
So, hey, another FBI story that we want to talk about, too, is, of course, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware situation. Um, so just when you thought it was safe to go back to the dark side, the FBI has struck back. Uh, this week, the Fed stole a, a march on the ransomware crew responsible for the Colonial Pipeline shutdown when they obtained a crypto address for the Bitcoins paid uh, to open up the flow of fuel. Uh, the FBI also obtained the private key for the wallet, which was stored on US servers through undisclosed methods, which we may speculate about here in a moment. This allowed them to transfer the funds or some of the funds from the wallet, uh, around half the ransomware payment out of the wallet. There's no word on whether the FBI would continue to seize uh, assets related to Darkseid or if this is a one-time situation. Uh, Tom, is this a sign of hope for breached companies in this whole tide of ransomware or is this just government interference? I, you know, I don't know what this is because the FBI has, um, you know, they've already been working hand in fist with a lot of the companies, especially the ones that we've designated as critical infrastructure, which I would say a fuel pipeline qualifies for. So you knew they had a vested interest in keeping this from happening in the future. Oh, hey, look, I can hit a pipeline company. No, no, you can't. So, you know, was the whole ransom thing? Because remember, when we found out that, that they had paid the ransom, we were incredulous. Never pay. Never pay the ransom. That's stupid. Oh, wait, go ahead and pay the ransom if there's an FBI agent waiting on the other side of the door to arrest the guys and be like, give me the money back. So it's kind of interesting that they were able to at least get half of it back. Now, why is that? I mean, I would at least think that maybe Darkseid was smart enough to split the payment across multiple different wallets so that it couldn't all be recovered in the event of a breach or something like that. We've also seen how Revil has maybe infiltrated their network and is cleaning out crypto wallets and stuff like that. Um, but when we were starting the, the uh, story rundown here, Stephen, you had a really interesting thought about this and I want you to share it because I think that this may be actually the, the solution and quite honestly, given the FBI's hijinks, I think it's a better answer for what happened. Yeah, so let me just uh, start by saying I actually have uh, been very interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and wallets and blockchain and all that kind of stuff, done a lot of studying of it, and I even have a little tiny bit of it to experiment with. And um, I will just go on record here as saying that it's extremely unlikely that the FBI somehow cracked the wallet key. That's just not going to happen with the kind of cryptography that's used in Bitcoin. Um, even with top secret government, FBI, UFO, whatever technology. Um, I think that what's most likely happened here is that when the ransom was made, uh, I think that uh, the pipeline was already uh, talking with the FBI uh, apparently, the ransomware attackers gave them the choice of paying in Monero, which is untraceable cryptocurrency, or Bitcoin, which uh, maybe you don't know it, but is 100% public. I mean, the ledger is wide open for anyone to read. Uh, the Bitcoin had a tax of 10% more because they didn't want to get paid that way, and Colonial Pipeline chose to pay in Bitcoin. I think that that decision in illustrates that uh, they were already working with the FBI at that time. Furthermore, uh, Colonial paid in Bitcoin to a Bitcoin wallet that is apparently hosted in the United States. And this makes me th say, aha, I think what happened here was that the FBI got a warrant on the computer where the Bitcoin wallet was hosted in some kind of cloud service provider, like a wiretapping warrant. And then they instructed Colonial to pay the ransom. Colonial paid the ransom and then they watched it and they watched it until 
the you know uh, evil guys got in there into the wallet to transfer the money from that wallet to some other wallet. And as soon as they did that, the FBI wiretapping that computer saw the key come across the network, and then they used that key to immediately siphon off the rest of the ransom to some other wallet away from the ransomware crew. And so that's, I think, what happened here. And I think that explains everything. It explains how the FBI would have gotten their hands on this wallet, how they would have gotten the key, uh, why they only got part of the ransom in this way. And I think that if we look at the blockchain, which I have not done yet, I think we'll see this happen in real time. And I think that's going to be kind of a fun thing to look at. So, so that's my speculation. I don't know that that's true, but I really doubt that they cracked the key. I guess the only other option would be that they uh, used the old XKCD uh, guy with a wrench approach to uh, get the key from the bad guys, which is possible. Yeah, I like your solution because it's very much more a technical one um, and it kind of sounds cool, but it's also something that I could very much see happening, which would also explain why they haven't tried to do it yet in other places. Although, just saying this out there, if you are allegedly a criminal, allegedly doing criminal things, you allegedly shouldn't request ransom on a US-based wallet system because now that they've done this, they'll do it again. You won't get paid and well you'll have to go underground too so um you know allegedly don't do dumb stuff uh, definitely don't do dumb stuff uh but but you know i mean remember criminals are the people uh, the geniuses that do things like take the license plate off the car because they're worried about their license plate being tracked and then get pulled over for driving without a license plate so you know stuff like that actually literally happens all the time with criminal masterminds so True. there you go well, uh, shifting gears here away from these FBI stories for a moment. Um, hey, Tom, who's using your internet? Is it just you or is it maybe all of your neighbors? Um, you know, it might actually be Amazon. So the tech giant, uh, former bookstore, has quietly enabled an option on their hardware that can create a mesh network for outages. The idea is that even if your home internet goes down, your Amazon devices, such as Echo and Ring, can connect to other devices nearby and get connectivity that way. Uh, privacy experts are shouting about this, and uh, privacy novices are shouting about this too, um, asking whether this is a violation of privacy or a misuse of your stuff or whatever. Um, also in question is whether or not other people can use this mesh network in other ways. Um, the setting can be disabled and people could opt out, but of course it's on by default because it's Amazon, you know. Um, is this a big deal, Tom? Should this be being debated? So I go back to what you said earlier about there's tech news and there's tech news my mom has heard about. This is very much a tech news my mom has heard about situation because originally all of the speculation was, oh, people can drive outside of my house and park in my driveway and use my internet. No, that's not what this is. This is all about Amazon being able to keep their devices up and running. So that would be your ring doorbell, your echo speaker, and amazingly enough, tile trackers, which they just, you know, signed this big deal to collaborate better with tile. I, I wonder why that happened. Hmm. Um, anyway, so now in the event, like, let's just say that my echo is connected to my neighbor's net echo through mesh networking so they can see each other. And then my echo goes offline. Obviously, it must have been the internet going out, right? So my neighbor's Echo fires up this mesh network and says, hey, just use my network. Okay, great. 
well, except now I'm using my neighbor's internet connection to download recipes or do video calls with my mom and I may not know it, um, which, you know, that's not bad for these little, well, I say little speakers, they still consume a significant amount of resources. The big problem is the ring doorbells. So a lot of people are starting to ask, why would you need to connect your ring doorbell to your neighbor's network? Well, it turns out that the answer is because a lot of people are looking at this partnership that ring has with local law enforcement agencies they want to have access to all of this data in case something happens and they need to be able to get it up into the cloud somehow. Well, this is how. Um, this feels like a step too far. And if you think that that's the case, ask yourself what would have happened if Google had done this. If Google had decided that your, your Google speaker and your Stadia and everything was just going to borrow your neighbor's network connection, you probably would freak out. And rightfully so, a lot of people did freak out about this, but because Amazon kind of quietly buried this, the setting, it, which is not buried, you, it's not intuitive. And the name of it is not intuitive at all. In fact, in the article that we linked here, um, you know, it, it originally had a different name and now it's just called Amazon Sidewalk because why would I want to turn off my sidewalks? Well, now you know why. Um, it worries me though, because ultimately if you can slip these settings in and turn them on and we don't know any better, what's going to happen when this is not that setting. I mean, this is, this is Facebook, you know, quietly sharing your location data all over again. Um, and th what they're hoping is, is that most people are stupid enough to not know that it's there. And I don't like companies that are trying to make money off of their users being stupid. Yeah. Well, honestly, I I'm going to take a different approach to this. When I've been reading this story, my reaction has been, ah, this is fine. And I know that that's probably um, something that's controversial to a lot of our listeners and maybe even to 50% uh, of the hosts of this, of this show. Uh, but uh, frankly, this when I first heard about Sidewalk, my first thought was, oh, it's just find my except for a slightly different device type. Uh, frankly, uh, there are constraints on what they're using here. Uh, a lot of the sort of scare scenarios that are, people are saying, you know, oh, Amazon is going to be sharing my internet connection with the public and stuff like that. That's not really what's happening here. So just for comparison, you mentioned Tile. One of the reasons Tile is working with Amazon Sidewalk is because Apple released a uh, network called FindMy. And, 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 and surprise, surprise, FindMy also uses your connectivity to do Apple's business. Effectively, under the new Find My, what happens is Apple um, uses every phone that's not opted out to find AirTags and uh, iOS devices and MacBooks and so on that are in the Find My network if they're lost. And this is a new change. It's a new feature. And it's actually freaking cool. And one of the reasons that AirTags have to have uh, special privacy settings, like I don't know if another story we didn't cover, but uh, AirTags now time out. If they're not, uh, if they're placed somewhere the, away from your stuff for too long, and the reason is because theoretically they could be used as sort of universal trackers using the Find My network, simply because there's almost always an iOS device nearby that will say, "Oh yeah, I saw that tile, that uh, Apple tracker over here and over there." So, uh, does it freak you out to think that Apple is using your iPhone's cell network, you know, service to track my keys if it doesn't well then you're a step towards sidewalk now sidewalk is objectively different because sidewalk is using more 
data, but it's limited in how much data it can use. So Amazon has said that the maximum bandwidth of a sidewalk server, essentially you're, you know, so, you, so you're the person with the echo and the internet connection, you're worried about somebody else using your stuff. The maximum bandwidth that sidewalk will use is 80 kilobits, which is um, a tiny, tiny amount of bandwidth and not even enough to do a lot of the scary things that people are saying. So if we take Amazon at face value about the bandwidth limit, then we also have to say, well, that means that they can't be doing a lot of this scary stuff with the network. But there is kind of a slippery slope argument here that if Amazon says, okay, well, we're only using 80 kilobits now, um, well, what happens in the future if we have more broadband or if Amazon just decides to dial it up? I mean, can't you see a future where Amazon might say, um, from now on, Sidewalk can use 160, or from, not, from now on, Sidewalk can use a megabit. Um, well, then suddenly <laughs> a lot of these scary stories become true. So I think that Amazon basically did a really, really poor job of communicating about this feature and a really poor job of explaining it. And it scared the bejesus out of everybody because of that more than because of any inherent issue with the Sidewalk concept. And frankly, that's Amazon being Amazon because they're just terrible at marketing. Uh, I think that if Apple had announced exactly the same thing, and by the way, they totally might. Um, if Apple had announced exactly the same thing, everybody would be like, oh, okay. Um, simply because people kind of trust Apple and people totally don't trust Amazon. And I guess that's the story. I totally don't trust Amazon. Uh, and as Tom says, I get, you know, kudos to you, Tom, you are absolutely right. If Google had announced Google Sidewalk, I would be like, no, turn it off. So I get it. I get why you're so mad. Um, I just see that maybe there's a nuance here that isn't quite that. I mean, there, there really is a sliding scale. On one end, you've got Google, who I don't trust at all. On the other end, you've got Apple, who I trust more than most because they published all of the documentation and specs. And I can see what it's doing. And I know they're not trying to sell me stuff, maybe new iPhone, but not ads and, and you might like this stuff. Amazon is in the middle, but they tend more to Google until they can show me transparently what they're doing. So Jeff, this is on you, buddy, or Andy, if Andy's now running that side of the business. Um, it's up to you to, to kind of be performative and show me that you're, I'm willing to trust you again. All right, well, that will just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Thank you very much for joining us. We're always happy to have you each and every week at 12.30 Eastern Time on Wednesdays. If you want to learn a little bit more about what we do here, please make sure you head over to gestaltit.com. If you're not already there, you can click on a lot of the articles that we uh, publish on a weekly basis. You can read more of our speculations about things going on in the industry, as well as listen to some of our great podcasts. Um, Stephen, what are some things that you've got going on that people should definitely know about? Well, the next thing on my roster is Cloud Field Day coming up here at the end, uh, end of June. Uh, we are pretty excited to have a bunch of cloud native companies presenting uh, technology at uh, Cloud Field Day. Uh, and so please do check out techfieldday.com, learn more about that event. Uh, by the way, if you're interested in becoming a delegate or a presenter at a future Field Day event, you can go to techfieldday.com and there's a menu that you can drop down to learn how to submit your name. You can also just reach out to me uh, at sfoskit on Twitter or sfoskit at gestaltit.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Uh, but uh, as I said, that's the big thing that I'm excited about. And of course, uh, AI Field Day was recently uh, posted. So if you go to YouTube slash Tech Field Day, you'll see those videos. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we got some more great events coming up. So make sure you hit the website because we actually just added one yesterday. Uh, we've got a cloud focused event coming up with our friends at Cisco and you want to check out what we've got going on there. Uh, but for now, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett and all the other special agents that work uh, tirelessly to put together this amazing program. Thank you very much for joining us and we will make sure to see you bright and early next week.